Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to Parting the Atlantic, episode 7. Genesis 10 Hi, 11. Genesis 10 11. How y'all doing? They can't answer, John. Well, they can answer in their hearts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting, I can see in the future, we're getting all the good vibes from people. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I feel like there's not a ton to talk about. I mean, we can definitely talk about the Tower of Babel, which is the central story in Genesis 11. Um but what do you make of Genesis 10 and how is that different from the lineages that we've gotten before up until this point? Well, I can pull out some of the uh, Bibleist literature knowledge I've learned from the course that I'm taking. Oh, excellent. Um, this, so Genesis 10, both of these stories, honestly, are probably written from the priestly tradition of Old Testament writers that are very concerned with things such as lineages, rituals, all that kind of thing. I think the, um, well, because when you have, you know, priests look at the way that priests would like view like humans relationship with God more or less so you kind of like explain all of this and you know to kind of rituals to honor god well and to uphold the covenants um lineages yeah to because a lot of the ways that they write other stories like genesis one is is quite a priestly story that has really a a, a big picture focus and uh you know, kind of use God as kind of, you know, like, like a, the big test ruler of the universe. And at least my understanding of it, of this is that the lineages help us understand that, help us understand how we get from God to the big stories that we see later in the Bible. Yeah. And often, the, you know, the, most of the characters in um, these lineages, with, with some exception, you know, that, that, like the um, lineages leading up to like, you know, what is it? Joseph's colored coat. Right. Was that Joseph? Yeah. Um, are more so. important because all of those characters are, are present. But, you know, Genesis 10, I don't think we ever hear anything of 95% of these characters ever right. again. Right. But it's less of a, this person is important and more of a, this is how we get to, you know, from creation to the stories that are well known from the Bible and that actually do have an effect. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like Ham, especially like the story of like Noah's children was so hyped in the, like the preceding chapters. And I at least was very excited and like willing to learn more about Noah's children especially after like they see him naked and 
Noah basically curses and smites Ham on the spot. Like, you know, it's kind of like this yeah. weird dichotomy because in some senses also like Ham has the most profound or robust lineage of all of the brothers. Um, like if you just yeah. like look at what the Hamites consist of, you know, they're yeah. consisting of um you know, Nimrod is one of Ham's kin, and then the Luddites, the, uh, is the Canaanites? Yeah, the Canaanites. Yeah. Like, th there's a lot of, like, really prominent groups that come from Ham, and yet he's supposed to be the, his, him and his ascendants are the ones who are gonna be the slaves, essentially, of the other brother's kin. So that's something that I found really interesting is that like the names that I most recognize, it's almost like in politics, like, you know, the name recognition is such like a big feature. The names that I most recognized were Ham's offspring, even though yeah. in the previous chapters. So there's an interesting dichotomy there. What do you make of that? Well, you know, because, yeah, I think that the stories in the Bible, I think, generally have purpose being there. Um, I, we were we were talking kind of earlier in this type of discussion about uh, like like the human influences of the Bible mm -hmm. and how to process like the Bible as a holy work and all of the human influences that are in it and all of the like kind of you know external influences that, that make it into the bible and like, kind of what to do with all of that yeah um so i completely lost my train of thought but when we when we look at you know the stories that are included in the bible i don't think that they're necessarily like uh this is how you should act but they're more of like what are the stories that are important for shaping your relationships with God and or understanding who and what God is. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes that's, you know, stories of very holy people. Yeah. You know, kind of say, I'm like, this is how to act more righteously. Sometimes it's people that aren't so holy. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you know, either a lesson about how to be or a demonstration of how God responds to that kind of thing, something like that. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think necessarily that, like, the fact that we recognize, you know, bad people, quote unquote, is as much of an issue as, you know, like, who are the important people that we do actually recognize that make a difference in our understandings of God? Yeah, that's interesting. I think something that stood out in particular is how Nimrod, who's this like great warrior and who seems to be, you know, also revered by God, um, you know, it comes from Ham and it like yeah, it definitely speaks to your point that there's, you know, still an influence um, yeah. from certain figures in the Bible. Um, I think the maybe it also might speak to the theme of like redemption in the Bible. Um, yeah. 
I mean, you know, one of the most famous redemption stories, like Saul Paul, like, you know, he even has a different name <laughs> afterwards. And so, yeah, yeah, I think that might also just speak to like over time, like maybe the original like smite or curse or whatever is not removed, but at the same time, there are outliers. Yeah. Anything else about I, I, Genesis 10 that you want to say? Not really. I, you know, no, not really. It's really just lineages. I don't think there's the most to comment on. Yeah. Fairly straightforward. Yeah, definitely. Tower of Babel, though. That's pretty <laughs> Tower of Babel! Um, so, you know, ostensibly, like on the surface, the story is about how all of the people come together and they speak the same language somehow, which is weird because like in, in Genesis 10, it's like every one of these tribes, even though they're from the same like line or lineage, they all speak different languages. And now all of yeah. a sudden in chapter 11 we have this situation where the peoples speak the same language and they're building a tower um, i had to look up an interpretation of this so what i got from that interpretation was that so there's you know the temple the holy ground right and that's normally what you would be talking about in the ancient world when you're talking about a tower a place where god could come down through the tower and be present with people while people worshiped him yeah However, that's not the case in this story. People were building a tower essentially in order to praise themselves and their own work and uh, almost to like um, put themselves on a level equal or above to God is what I was reading. So, yeah. you know, in the ancient world, there were a lot of other gods to contend with. And those gods um, had, you know, material needs whether it was yeah. some sort of like actual like food or sustenance or material or whatever, um, people were placed on the earth to provide those material needs to the gods that they provided through sacrifices yeah. and rituals. But building a tower essentially for themselves makes this story a an attempt of humankind to start to move forward in history without God, without anyone to serve. Um, and the Lord sees this and decides to scatter them, which is why it's called Babel, which I think is like, I had this like aha moment, which is so obvious, right? Like the word Babel like comes from this story, yeah. but yeah, I, I thought it was kind of cool. Like that moment of like, oh, actually this is kind of interesting. <laughs> Please tell me like what you have gotten from this story, what you discussed in class about it, if anything. I'd love to hear. Yeah, the the, the class didn't actually, you know, mention much of it, pretty much, you know, besides a brief synopsis of that it exists. Uh, but I, I think one of um, the most interesting things in general about the Old Testament to me, I had for gotten just how much of the old testament 
as polytheism, not on the part of like the Israelites, but more like, you know, the Israelites encountering other people. Mm-hmm. And it's not even right away in the Old Testament that the Israelites are definitively monotheists. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, you know, they, they, they interact with other gods plenty of times over yeah. many of the books. And sometimes God gets mad at it, mad, mad about it. Um, but the, you know, that, that, that doesn't stop the facts that, um, they're still polytheists for yeah. a lot of the Bible and the relationships that people had with other gods were a lot more personal. Mm-hmm. and because you know, they were so specific and, it was like yeah. you know you are the god of fertility you are the god of rain yeah you know there's like a specific yeah. means to an end that they serve with that Sorry, so did this you know with all of that big picture in mind this is really the first time that we see you know the god of israel punishing the Israelites for trying to have that same relationship. You know, that's the first time I think that we really see that relationship start to take root and it doesn't take root right away, you know, because the, the, the Israelites didn't take monotheism in this, you know, with this God as for granted, like we do today. Yes. But I think, you know, I, I, I think it's, I think it's more of a foundational text than people realize mm-hmm. in the fun, you know, besides maybe the creation story, I think it's the first story that we see in Genesis that really defines the first, like, of, you know, the first distinctive quality that the God of Israel has over others. First, you know, like, of course, God is, you know, like they made sacrifices to God. God can punish people. But I don't think necessarily that sets this God apart in the same way from like other gods, the same way that this story does, where you really, really start getting the power dynamic shifting towards a monotheistic type of religion where God is as unilaterally powerful and supreme as we understand God will be today. What about the flood, though? Um, Depends how seriously you want to consider um, historical aspects of the flood. Um, but I think the important thing about the flood is that Christianity is by far not the only faith that has such a story dated to around the same time. Not, I mean, the Abrahamic faiths aren't even alone in that. Other faiths still have it. Um, so yeah, I know that. Depending on how, just I think, just depending on how seriously you want to take that, and then how much you want to. Um, extrapolate that to say that that flood isn't specific to this one God. 
but, but like if it, you know if you want to say like okay it's like set up for this guy that was this guy acting great i think that's a valid argument to make i see but what you mean yeah I see you what could you also mean. kind of go in different directions with it mm-hmm. uh, but you know at, at the same time like in at no point in the uh, does God ever, you know, make the case for being the, you know, definitively saying this, I'm doing this because I'm the only God. I think it was just kind of like a punishment. And I think that I may, maybe I need to know more about how and whether other gods also punish the, you know, people of the time. Maybe that also has an impact on this. Well, the issue is, is like, because the other gods didn't exist, like, there's a different dynamic, right? Because if you think like, oh, you do a dance and to the rain god and then it doesn't rain, you know, that's the punishment, basically. Is there's, there, you know, there's a very, like, in my eyes at least, a very material, direct, one-to-one kind of transaction or a transactional relationship. Like, you satisfy the god's needs, the god provides you what you want, you know, done deal, like, you know, um... Fertility God, same thing, you know, you know what I mean? Like, and you know, this, the God of Israel does not behave the same way. And as we see, especially like moving towards the New Testament, you know, the concepts of grace and forgiveness and things like that, second chances, like, you know, being born again, like all of these different types of themes that start to pop up with this particular God of Israel. Um, which I think a lot of people mistakenly identify as a very wrathful, revengeful God in the Old Testament. Um, you know, it's just, it's world's different. It's not anymore this relationship of transaction, um, but it's possible also, you know, it seems like in this story, the Tower of Babel, that the people didn't have really a good context to understand that yet. And so the punishments that God place places, like, you know, I'm not obviously in a position to say whether that's just or not or anything like that, but it seems like yeah, I mean, God was starting to build the conditions in which people could start to understand um, how yeah. to worship and interact with a God like Him. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to you know deny the things that go on later in the Bible. I just think that this is you know the the first time that we really start to understand this God as not we, I should reframe that because we, we, we approach the Bible now from a different perspective than the Israelites did at the time. I think it is the first moment when you can look at the Israelites and you can say, this is the first time that you can directly make the argument that all of these punishments in the Bible come only from one God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not to, you know, not to say that you can't make a case for the fact that you can also do that before this story, because you can certainly make the case, and I don't think that it would be wrong. Yeah. But you know, it, it's we're really starting to identify the singularity of this one single God now. Yeah. Um, and, I think that's a compelling point. You know, and may, maybe, you know, I, I think there are also different ways to approach it. Maybe you can say, like, 
first time we see it versus the time that we confirm it, right? So like maybe you could say that the other God, you know, the, the chapters before this, was building it up and now we have the final confirmation with the Tower of Babel. The, I think you could also say that it's the first time that you explicitly have it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the point isn't to take away the other qualities away from God before the Tower of Babel. It's not to say that God wasn't powerful, that God wasn't merciful or wasn't all-knowing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But at a, in a very basic sense, this, it's, this is a very pivotal moment in the concept of monotheism for, for it's, uh, Judaism and right. Christianity, I think. Right. And it's when you can really identify and say, okay, with however way you want to approach it, from this point on, certifiably, it's all monotheism. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Like, 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 you get the closure for it right there. Mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to add just separately from that point is how interesting it is that the role that language plays in this particular story in the Bible. Um, I think it's amazing yeah. that so much of their mutual understanding is lost when they don't speak the same language, that they literally can't work towards a shared goal anymore. I find that fascinating because so much of our global world is about finding shared goals, shared understanding, Um, not only training people to work towards that, you know, translators, for example, or global diplomats who speak more than one uh, language, uh, or ambassadors, for example, Um, but also, you know, even our technology our tools are working towards more tourism, more visitors and guests, you know, in certain parts of the world, maybe more than others. But, you know, I I just think it's really interesting how, like, there was this concept of humanity where language was like, language was the separating factor here. Um, So I'm just speaking as a linguist. I found that fascinating how like language is a separating factor and now we're starting to bridge that gap again. Um, you know, so I don't know if that's like <laughs> forewarning or something, yeah, but yeah. you know, I just think it's so, so fascinating that language was enough to tear people away from working towards this thing. Yeah. I do think it's interesting too. I mean, this is especially in the an issue in the US where you'll see a lot of people will say like, especially with immigrants, like, oh, why can't you just learn to assimilate with, with us in the U.S.? Or, you know, the, the, the cash phrase that, that I think has gotten popular over the last five, ten years, though, it's like, oh, you're in America, speak English. So I, you know, I think in many ways, we've made a lot of progress in the world to, to get over language barriers towards progress but you know not to say that language barriers don't still pose uh an often self-imposed barrier to to human progress which i think is an interesting dichotomy that we've come to yeah i mean it's i can only speak from my own experience um that you know being a a migrant and you know i'm 
I really hate the word expatriate. Um, I just don't like that word um, because I think the connotations behind it and you know like there's so many reasons why to visit another country for a couple years um, and you know the fact that like migrants and expatriates are separated even though they belong pretty much in the same category the only difference is probably their level of training and education um expatriates yeah, yeah. being sort of the more educated group um anyway so i have a lot of problems with that terminology because it's very loaded um and because it has for me a lot of negative connotations of leaving your country for probably political reasons or other personal reasons which is not um true in my case um yeah so yeah i don't know i think from my own experience living in a country um that's pretty much monolingual like in terms of like the broad scope of things um there are recognized minority languages in germany my lord recognized minority groups i should say um yeah who've been here since the middle ages and you know they have um specific locational areas in germany there's also of course like other language minorities that aren't locationally um differentiated so um you know gastarbeiter um like turkish immigrants to germany so you know yeah. there's kind of there's a lot of like minority groups here but at the same time like it is pretty much similar to the u.s in that way like the government for instance pretty much monolingual german um and yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about what it's like to be a guest in another country, what it's like to be set apart in that way. And I think what, to what you were speaking yeah. earlier, you know, about the U.S., like I definitely have a lot more empathy for people who come and migrate um, because in my experience, you know, I am a fluent German speaker, like say why, <laughs> like, you know, I can communicate everything and a cupcake when it comes to German in every like area. And that's not to like brag or anything, but that's to say that even as a mother tongue fluent German speaker, there are still more and more hoops that I have to go through in order to live here. Um, and that's again, like not a complaint yeah. or anything like I'm perfectly happy going through all these hoops, but sometimes, especially socially, it does feel like people still ask me things that like, I feel like I would never ask somebody who is a guest to my country. Like people just ask me some rude things sometimes um, because I have an accent maybe because, um, you know, something that I do or say isn't like native German. So, that's all to say that I have a lot more empathy for people in the U.S. who go through similar experiences. I definitely get it. Like, you know, the language often isn't the problem. It's often a problem of other people's stereotypes um, about yeah. the people who are speaking the language. So, you know, in terms of like language ideologies, that's exactly what we talk about in linguistics. It's not about the actual linguistic ability of that person, the actual communicative communicative ability of that person. It's not about their first language or their mother tongue. It's about yeah. the stereotypes of the group that people attribute to the people who speak that language. Um, and language ends up being a scapegoat for a lot of different political and 
stereotypical package. Which itself has plenty of other biblical history as well that I'm sure we will eventually get to since we have a large majority of Bible left to go. Yes. Um, last but... thing I wanted to point out in the last like couple lines is that at the end of chapter 11, I will read it. Uh, it's, this is the section Abraham's, Abram's family. Um, and then in verse 32, it says, Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran, uh, which I find interesting because we haven't had like a location of the death before, have we? It's usually like they lived 205 years and then they, their kin lived X amount of years. I don't, not off the top of my head, um, but, you know, I, I think same with language, that the further you get through the Old Testament, the more important specific land become, you know, in, in large part because plenty of the Old Testament is based around God promising the Israelites, the you know, Israel, like the land yeah. itself and all of the places and people that they encounter on their way to getting that land. Yeah. So as we, yeah, you know, I, I think that the easy explanation that just immediately comes to mind is that the further you get through, the more important land becomes not only because of the promise, but because of family lines, because of lineages, because of power structure, you know, because of, what your family and your birthplace say about you and your status. So as with, you know, other things in the Bible that I've been considering as we've had this discussion, it's just, I think it's just going to be something that kind of gradually you're going to see more and more and more of as we go through the rest of the Bible mm -hmm. in both Testaments. Yeah. Makes sense to me. All right, lovey, let's wrap it up here. Any All last right. words? You excited for Genesis 12 onwards? 12 and 13 and 14 and all the rest of it. Whenever, whenever we get to it. Genesis 12 is the call of Abram. So we're getting into some meaty, meaty chapters as we're going forward. How long is Genesis, lovey? Oh, uh, I don't know. I should know. Read the whole read thing? It. Yeah, I was going to say. I, I, I've read the whole book of Genesis <laughs> and I can't. Um, oh, love. <laughs> I can find out right quick. 30 something chapters is my guess. I'm going to guess 31 chapters. Aha. Waylo. 50. 50? <laughs> yeah. Mittens. <laughs> Mighty mittens. <laughs> I, I, you know, but. I think a good chunk of the end of Genesis is one singular story. I want to say it's Joseph, but I'm not 100%. It is Joseph. It's Joseph because Joseph comes before the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. Yes. Um, so yeah, like, like the last 20 chapters or so is all Joseph. I mean, so after we get out of Genesis, this is much more familiar territory for me. Um, in the Bible, so I will be happy to lend more of my biblical yeah. experience and expertise. 
after yeah, Genesis? I, 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 I think the rest, we'll find out whether I'm right. I'm fairly certain the rest of the book is like Abraham and then Joseph with a little bit of transition in between. So. Fair enough, lovey. Alrighty. Well, we will see you all next time. I love you, John. Jacob is in there too, I think. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. Anyway, yes. Uh, very excited for our next our next recording. Hey, nephew. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.